This morning's scripture is from Matthew 12, 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brother stood outside, asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples. He said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. If you're a guest or a visitor this morning with us, my name's Mike Traben. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Fellowship Church. I'm so grateful to be here and that you would join us. I want to extend my own welcome to all of you. Uh, I want to also welcome the Gibson family. We have, they are longtime cross-cultural partners of Trinity Fellowship Church, Philip and Gabriella and their family. And uh, thank you for visiting with us this morning. I hope you'll have time to stick around in the fellowship hour and, and folks can, can catch up with you. It's, uh, it's, it's a bit of a maxim, perhaps, in public speaking or certainly preaching to, to never begin with an apology. But I'm going to break that rule this morning. I, I want to apologize to the women's ministry leadership team. I derailed a meeting this morning by leaving my keys to the car that I was driving in the car that my wife had driven to church. So interrupted that meeting. She had to come home and, and get me. And, and in the process, I also an apology to those of you who are gluten-free while waiting for my wife to come retrieve me, I thought, oh, you know, kind of clean out the car. If you own a minivan, you know it collects a lot of things. And so I took the gluten-free snacks that I thought were just something that didn't get removed in a grocery store trip, and I put them in my kitchen. So I'm, I am what we term in the Marine Corps this morning a soup sandwich. Um, lots to apologize for. I did get the donuts, however, so apologies to those of you who have struggled with that addiction. Um, I'm not helping you there either. Um, and I will be available in the uh, connection hour, the fellowship hour to issue apologies to anybody else who believes uh, that they're owed. I have much to apologize for. I, it, I'm sincere in my apologies to my wife um, and, and the women's ministry team and the gluten-free folks among you. Uh, well, I'm not sure how many folks here have ever had an opportunity to travel to, to London, England. Um, but if you have and you've ever transited through the London Underground, which they call the Tube, uh, you might be familiar with a phrase that's actually fairly iconic even in popular culture, right? This phrase, mind the gap. I see my world travelers uh, mouthing the phrase. Over a hundred years after the tube was began in, in London, this, this system was installed to alert travelers to this hazardous space that frequently occurs between the platform and the train. And, and this automated warning is heard thousands of times a day at every stop on the London Underground. Mind the gap. And as minding physical gaps is important to prevent injury, I want to offer this as our image this morning, that being mindful of the relational gaps in our lives is of the utmost importance to God. 
You see, the enemy of our souls is, is constantly at work to drive a wedge in our relationships. And our inwardly focused sin nature contributes to these gaps. Gaps exist in families. Gaps exist between members of the body. Gaps exist wherever communities of people have formed. Gaps, they are everywhere. And how we are postured toward one another can, can contribute or create these relational gaps. These, these gaps can be further emphasized by historical legacies that exist between people groups and, and, and they can be exacerbated by the manner and means and the methods by which we choose to interact with one another. You see, the, the, the nature of our modern culture in particular and the means by which we consume and we share information and we interact with one another has only first uh, served to, to widen these gaps. Well, our diversity as people, our diversity as a culture is both a strength and a challenge. We're becoming increasingly polarized, both outside and inside the church. And I want to offer that we, we reject this reality at our own peril. We have social media platforms. We have mainstream media that, that push us further toward the margins. And we form these aggressive fringes from where we communicate interpersonally out of a place of frustration or anger or outrage. It, it's as if we're at various places in these London underground stations shouting to one another, mind the gap, seeing gaps from a different vantage point, perceiving gaps to be somewhere where somebody else doesn't, and not having a great deal of unity as to where those gaps truly lie. But signaling to one another to mind the gap, isn't enough. Beyond repeating a warning phrase or posting a sign, the question I want to look at this morning is how are we as the church, the family of God, how are we to mind and to mend the gap through our very lives? Would you pray with me for a moment? Father, would you still my own mind and heart this morning? Would you Bring to us a sense of calm and order and clarity that we could hear your word and see your son and see ourselves in light of who he is and what he is doing in our hearts and in our church and in our culture. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we continue this morning in our series on Matthew's gospel as we, we heard from the music team and Christ here, we're in chapter 12, Christ continues to proclaim the inauguration of the kingdom. And he's, his identity and his very authority we're beginning to see here in chapter 12 are being openly challenged, primarily by this group of, of religious leaders known as the Pharisees. Now the term Pharisee means separated ones. They were known for their strict religious observance of the law the Torah, and they were the teachers of the law, and they developed their own tradition of interpreting these scriptures and, and teaching them both through the written 
words of the first five books of our Old Testament, as well as their oral teaching, their own interpretation of what it meant. Now, the Pharisees were one of three sects in early Judaism, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes, but they were the largest and the most influential religious political party. They controlled the synagogues, and they wielded a great deal of influence over the population. So so why this gap that has emerged between Jesus and the religious teachers of Israel? Why were the Pharisees, men who were, who were devout and religious, many men who truly loved God and sought God, why were they so set against Jesus? Well, they opposed Jesus because Jesus refused to accept their interpretations of the law that they saw in the five books of Moses. The Pharisees, you see, summoned people to adhere to their interpretation of the law. In contrast, Jesus summoned people to the true meaning of the law, as we saw in his Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus summoned people to the truth that obedience to the law was the result of one's relationship with God, not the way to the relationship with God and one's salvation. So competing with Jesus for the allegiance of the masses, the Pharisees attacked Jesus over apparent violations of the law. They attacked him for his association with people who were considered notoriously wicked and sinful, they attacked Jesus for his own claims to be God himself. And so as we come to this part of the gospel narrative here in chapter 12, it, it truly represents a turning point in Jesus' ministry. It's, it's, it's a rich 50 verses, and we're not going to cover all of them today, thank God, or I'd issue another apology. But with Divine authority, in contrast to the pharisaical interpretation of the Old Testament, we see here in chapter 12 that Jesus is is condemning Israel. He's condemning Israel through the religious leadership of their community for their hard-heartedness toward God and their neighbor. And he foretells Israel's condition will become worse than before and result in condemnation and the destruction of Jerusalem. He's calling them to repentance, but he he's God. He knows their hard-heartedness. What we need to see here, too, is that, is that Jesus, he's rejected the religious leaders of Israel, and he's chosen a group of disciples, as we saw in chapter 10, who form the nucleus of a renewed nation. You see, Israel's rejection of Jesus reorients his mission on the Gentiles, those who are not Israel. And he's reconstituting the people of God in what we know today as the New Testament church. The church as a people separate from Israel, a new household of faith, a family that is shaping its own understanding of of what it means to live life together as true children of the Heavenly Father. 
So in our sermon text this morning, verses 46 through 50, Jesus, at the end of all of this, uses his own family as an object lesson to highlight that it's obedience to the will of our Father in heaven that's the central feature that that creates and characterizes the family of God. And so I want to assert three characteristics that the church must live out if we're to mind the gap. And along the way, I'll offer two applications. Well, this first characteristic is that the the church's primary concern in the community is people. The church's primary concern is people, the person of Christ, the person of ourselves as, as believers, and the person of others that God brings into our sphere of influence. In the first 14 verses of chapter 12, the gap between the leaders of Israel and Jesus manifests itself in these alleged violations of the Sabbath laws. The Pharisees take issue with Jesus' disciples picking grain on the Sabbath because they're hungry, they're feeding themselves. They take issue with Jesus, they try to set him up. Whether it's lawful to heal someone on the Sabbath. But it's important for us as we see these accounts that, that they're questioning him on their interpretation of the rabbinic law. Not the true law, not the biblical law. You see, the this gap between Jesus and the Pharisees exists because the Pharisees love things more than people. They love ideas more than people. In contrast, Jesus says the the person of Christ in human flourishing has a primacy over exalted places, practices, or platforms. If we look starting in verse 6 of chapter 12, Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You see, Jesus is is telling them, he's Lord of the Sabbath. The person of Christ matters more than any policy or rule or guideline. The humanity of people bearing the image of Christ matters more than platforms and policies. The Sabbath, he tells them, was made for people, not the other way around. Well, as I said, the Pharisees seek further to entrap Jesus with a question about healing on the Sabbath, as we see in verse 12. But he, he tells us, and this is the point I want to reinforce here, he tells them, it's always right in the eyes of God to make people our primary concern. It's always lawful, he says, to do good. Jesus is saying to them and to us, to do no harm, sometimes we must prioritize the welfare of the person over the program or the process or the policy or the procedure. But note what happens in verse 14. In stark contrast, the, the Pharisees are so entrenched in their commitment to their misplaced priorities. They're so incensed that Jesus would even 
posit that people matter more than things, that what does it tell us? It says they conspire to destroy him. Jesus is calling us to preserve people, to heal people, to meet them in their places of pain, to promote human flourishing. And the Pharisees of the world want to destroy people. And we see in verse 7, Jesus always prioritized people. He says, if, if you knew what it meant, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you wouldn't be condemning the guiltless. He's saying our sacrifices, yes, they're important. Religious observance of God's command is, is at the heart of being a disciple. He says our sacrifices are important, but mercy is more important than sacrifice. Now, I don't suspect anyone here disagrees with Jesus on this when we read these words, but, but, but to elevate the primary concern for people in our everyday practices that, that can get a little harder, right, as we deal with our own human nature. Friends, the church needs to be a place where we are fully present to one another and free to, to be fully ourselves in all of our differences. It's a, a place where people with diverse gifts, backgrounds, experience, race, ethnicity, nationality, political views, vocations, where we can move together beyond just our religious observances, our consumption of religious goods and services, and, and, and grow to be fully present participants in the kingdom life as, as one body, unified in Christ, diverse in who God made us to be. Well, well, how do we move further toward this? One application is that we can show our concern for people by giving them a vision of Jesus in, in every area of our lives and in our actions. You see, we're not just Christians on Sunday morning from 9 to noon or whatever. This is an every day, every moment calling on our lives. And we have to ask ourselves, how do we show people Jesus? Well, in the middle of this narrative about the controversies in verses 18 to 21, as we heard in our call to worship this morning, Matthew inserts this powerful vision of Jesus as a spirit-endowed servant, one who does not quarrel or cry out. One who deals gently with the hurting and the oppressed. One who doesn't waver in leading justice to victory. The servant is Jesus. But it's a, it's a striking example of this balance of strength and gentleness, conviction and compassion. An unwavering commitment to do what's right, yet, yet humble servanthood that doesn't Shout others down or shut them out. And as we gaze upon this image of the spirit-endowed servant, we need to ask ourselves, well, how do we, you and I, individually and collectively, how do we need to grow to balance these same things? Those with whom we have differences need to see Jesus 
in our lives. And we need to be able to see Christ in them. All who bear the image of God. Those who have hurt us need to see Jesus in our lives. And we need to be able to see Jesus in those who we've hurt. Whether that's been intentional or unintentional. The hurting. When we encounter difficulties in our relationships, this is precisely when we want to act like Jesus. Think like Jesus. Speak like Jesus. Bear the fruit of the spirit that Jesus did in every encounter. The church's primary concern is people. And when we encounter people, all people, our responsibility is to to draw their attention to God by being living examples, witnesses to his grace, his mercy, his justice, and his loyal and steadfast love. Well, if the primary concern of the church is people, then our, our posture in the community needs to be one of presence, a posture of presence for people, particularly those who are in pain. In verses 22 to 29 of chapter 12, this demon-possessed man, a man blind and dumb, is brought to Christ, and, and Jesus heals him, restoring both his speech And his sight. And again, what's the result? Conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. So hard-hearted are the Pharisees that, that they accuse Jesus of sourcing his power, not from God, but from Satan. It's, it's astounding. Well, we must grow in our capacity to, to enter into the life experiences of others, especially those who we perceive to be on the other side of the gap. Jesus clearly understood the religious and emotional atmosphere of his time. He felt with the crowds and their suffering under Rome and under religious oppression, the weight of the, of fulfilling the law. He understood And shared the Pharisees' desire for scrupulous purity before God. And in understanding them, he was able to treat people as individuals and accept those, even those who opposed him the most. And in understanding them, he was better able to minister to their deepest needs. As I said, the church today is full of people who have a diversity of life experiences and life histories, opinions, points of view. And in that respect, we're we're a reflection of the culture that we live in. If we want to mind and to mend the gap, we've got to grow in our capacity to put ourselves in the place of people, even those who oppose us and and make an earnest and loving effort to understand what makes them think the way they do and makes them do the things they do. To understand the viewpoint of someone whose convictions are different, to see and understand the life experiences that have shaped them. 
when we're able to understand the experiences and feelings of others, it, it changes the way we interact with them. That's been my experience. I've experienced it through friends for good. By interacting with people of a different faith and a different culture, one that I was, through my military experience, very much predisposed to be hostile toward, simply beginning to see them on their life's journey and what led them there has helped me to see them in a different light. The primary concern of the church is for all people, and the posture of the church is one of presence. And our role in the community is to promote human flourishing. When we look to the very beginning of the scriptures, we see in Genesis 1 that that God's mandate for his image bearers is that life would flourish. N.T. Wright gives this beautiful image that he says, in God's design, we're, we're stewards of his creation, the bearers of his image, and the builders of his temple. When we go all the way back to Genesis 1 and the mandate that he gave to our proto-parents in the garden, his design was to bring about the flourishing of human life. And his design to do that is the family. A spiritual family charged with expanding the boundaries of the garden and, and multiplying God's image throughout the earth, both physically through procreation and spiritually by making disciples. Well, in our text this morning, Jesus has specified that the central feature that, that creates and characterizes this spiritual family is, is obedience to the will of the Father. You see, Jesus, in his own family, had to mind and mend the gap. Not just between him and the Pharisees and those who he's calling, but his own immediate family. The New Testament doesn't give us a complete picture of the dynamic of Jesus' immediate family. But what it does reveal is that his immediate family members seem constantly to have misunderstood him and even opposed him. We read in John 7, verse 5, his, his own brothers did not believe him. In Mark chapter 3, verse 21, it says his family sought to seize him, saying he was out of his mind. And here we see in, in Matthew chapter 12, his, his mother and his brothers and sisters have come and they want to speak to him. And Jesus says, my true mothers and brothers and sisters are those who obey the will of our Father in heaven. Well, what is this will of our Father in heaven that when obeyed distinguishes us as the family, the true family in Christ? Well, as a starting point, it's, it's each individual responding to the will of the Father and, and obeying Jesus' call to the kingdom to place our trust and faith in Christ and who he is and what he says and what he's done and what he promises to do and to become his disciple. But when Jesus is talking about obedience to the will of the Father, he's also talking about, as Paul tells us, the, the will of God is our sanctification, he tells the, the church in Thessalonica. Our sanctification 
to put off the things of the flesh and to acquire the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus says to do the will of the Father is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Peter says that the will of the Father is to do good and to serve God and to serve others. Now, it's important to recognize in this passage that Jesus isn't dissolving family bonds. His immediate family, we see later in the scriptures, his brother James becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. His mother and his brothers are in the upper room praying with the disciples, waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We have letters in the New Testament written by James and his brother Jude. His family and even his extended family went on to be important pillars of the early church. Jesus is not dissolving family bonds, but he's he's putting them in perspective relative to a higher priority, which is the kingdom of God. So it's important that we take away here, friends, that in our relationship to family and in our relationship to others, even those who are the most disagreeable, I can't imagine anything more disagreeable than your family saying, hey, you're crazy. Even to those who are most disagreeable, there's a bigger picture going on in their lives. How, How can we be God's agent of love and encouragement in this process of mutual transformation that God has called us to? Well, one, we can, we can make the primary dynamic of our relationships one where we go from giving, or rather from taking to giving, from being served to serving. Now, there's times in our lives where we have to receive, but God's calling us to an orientation where we're able to serve others, to love others, to, to give of our lives. God's entire purpose in sending his son was this costly act of self-giving love. So when we follow Jesus' own example to ministry, we, we find that he, he came to give, not to take. He came not to be served, but to serve. And the scriptures tell us to give his life as a ransom for many. And it's this same attitude and posture of, of self-sacrificial love that should also characterize our closest relationships. When we see the challenges of our world through the lens of the gospel, and when we build a common life together, friends, we live into God's mandate for his image bearers to promote human flourishing. Well, when this iconic message heard by millions on the London, in the London tube was first recorded over 60 years ago, the voice belonged to a, a popular London stage actor by the name of Oswald Lawrence. And over the years, those voices would change and become different. But after Lawrence passed in 2007, his, his widow, Margaret Lawrence, would frequently visit the tube stations that played his voice. Years 
after his death, to her shock and dismay, she discovered that the, the one station where his voice remained, this recording had been replaced. So she went and appealed to the, the leadership of the London Underground and, and they agreed to reinstate the voice of her husband at this one station in his honor. It chokes me up a bit, I'm sorry. When, <laughs> when my father passed away, when I was in my late 20s, I used to call my house to hear my, um, my own dad's voice on the voicemail. And I don't want to say I still have issues with my brother, but one day my brother erased that message without consulting anybody. If anyone's a counselor, I'd like to talk to you afterwards. But um, <laughs> so, but friends like this faithful and persistent widow, may, may we continually seek to find and to hear and to obey the voice of the Lord. And in our obedience to that voice, mind and mend the gaps. You see, our, our relationship with Jesus changes every other relationship. And the privilege of belonging to God's household, to be Christ's mother, brother, and sister, brings with it obligations to obey the true law, the law that Jesus is commanding us to obey. And so may we grow to have the most intimate relationship with Jesus and experience God's grace by following him and being his disciples, disciples who obey the will of our Father in heaven and wholeheartedly love God and others as we mind and as we mend the gaps. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, we come to you with just such great thanksgiving, Lord, that through your Son that you have mended the gap that exists between your fallen image bearers and you. And that, Father, that he has closed this gap and that we have unfettered access to you. And so, Father... We also acknowledge that, God, you've called us to a place not to just be self-absorbed in our relationship with you and our relationship to your scriptures and your law, but, God, that, that you have given us this mission. You've commissioned us, Father, to go and to make disciples of all people groups. And that the vision of your heavenly kingdom is a, a vision of a, of a kingdom of marvelous diversity of, of life experiences and points of view, all united in our love of you and in our worship of your Son. And so, Father, would you equip us to grow in our capacity, God, to make people our primary concern, to to grow in how we posture ourselves in all of the spheres wherein we live out our life and our calling as your disciples that we could bring healing to those in pain, that we could do good and not do harm, 
even harm that comes with the best of intentions. And Father, would you help us to, to live into this mandate, to our role to promote human flourishing. God, we're so grateful that you aren't done with us, that you deal with us as, as imperfect people, that your desire is that we would continue to walk and to grow with you. And we pray that you would continue to work out all of those things as we do this together in the name of your son, Jesus, and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand.